part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Well, open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We've been going through the different gospel accounts and looking at the Christmas story. And uh, we've been very clear that uh, each one is kind of coming from a different perspective. And today we're going to look at uh, the Gospel of John. And if you just opened up the Gospel of John and you were reading kind of as, an, uh, as a novice, and uh, uh, you, you would begin to see that, okay, this really isn't a Christmas story. Where, where's the hay and where's the manger and where's the, some of the things like, that we identify with this Christmas story? What's well, because, as we said before in the, the previous weeks, each of the gospel writers is really giving us a different account of the life of Christ. One, not so much to say, okay, Christ, I'm the right one, and, and these other three gospels ignore those. They're not trying to compete. Uh, Ricky, have you ever seen the, the dueling banjos? You know, and you, have you seen that before? You know, the one guy on the banjo kind of does a couple licks and the other guy, you know, does the, a couple licks back and they kind of duel back and forth. Uh, well, it's a kind of a kind of a competing thing. You know, who's the best on the banjo? That's not what the gospel writers are doing. They're not, you know, they're not telling their story of Jesus and saying, okay, here's what I said about Jesus. What do you say about Jesus? And they're not trying to compete with one another. They are trying to give us a most complete picture of Christ from every aspect. And so as they write, they're writing to different audiences for different purposes. As we've stated before, that um, Matthew, he's writing to a Jewish audience. And so that's why he really wanted to portray Christ in that coming, that Christmas story, as here's the Messiah, the Messiah King that is coming. And very much in Matthew's writings, as we open up that gospel, that's why he tells us about the Magi, and he tells us about these kingly gifts that Jesus Christ receives, and about King Herod. Everything about that is majesty. Everything about that is centered around royalty. And if you were painting that picture, you would use a lot of uh, purples and golds because it's just that kind of that royalty. Well, last week we looked at Luke, and we saw that Luke has very much more of an earthy approach. If you're painting that, you would use a lot of earth tones, browns and tans and golds and burgundies and you know, those kind of colors that just kind of you know, are more down home and just earthy. And that's why we find in that story Jesus laying in the manger. We see the, the herald of the angels not speaking to kings, but speaking to the shepherds. And we see that very much that Luke is trying to show us not just the royalty of Jesus, the humanity, that this really was a little baby boy, just like you and me. Well, now we come to John. John, by far, is going to be the most theological. And, and for a lot of people, you, you kind of are intimidated maybe by theology. And you're going, okay, you know, I kind of like the real practical. Just tell me what to do. You know, how do I live my marriage? How do I do this, that? And we like the practical part of the Christian life. Well, folks, all that practical, hopefully, is always built upon the theological. If we don't have theological truth, then what we've done is just kind of man's edition of how to live life. And as you will hear me say before, and I will say it again, I'm sure, folks, we don't need a life coach. We don't need Christ as our life coach. We need a Savior. And so that's what God has given us. And so that's why a lot of times when we look into God's Word and we just start exposing His Word and preaching His Word as it is suggested, He's not going to just say, okay, here's five ways to a better life, to a better you. No, He always shows us one way to the most complete me that I can be, and that is me in Christ, resting in the finished work. And so that's what we see here. John is taking a very theological approach, 
And uh, one reason that John doesn't mention a manger and shepherds and all those things is John is more than likely, we believe, the last of the Gospels, the last of the four Gospels to be written. By this time, more than likely, uh, John is writing 10 or 15, maybe even as much as 20 years after the other Gospels. And so it's already very much known that Jesus was laid in a manger and all those kind of stories and the Magi and the gifts and all those different things. So, you know, John is not trying to repeat that story. Remember, they're not competing. They're completing the story of Christ. And so he's not saying, okay, can I make it sound better than Luke did? I'm not going to only have him in a manger, but I'm going to say that it was 32 degrees and the little baby was cold. And so they had to wrap him up in those swallowing clothes. You know, they're not trying to give us two different accounts of the same exact details. So John goes in, not covering manger scene, magi, anything like that. He wants us to know one thing. And this would be my prayer that as we would look into God's word this morning, that we would walk away this morning going, okay, the gospel of John does give us a Christmas story. Not with angels and shepherds and mangers and all little drummer boy and all that kind of stuff. He shows us the Christmas story by saying that this little baby is God. To where Matthew wants us to see the royalty of Jesus, where Luke wants us to see the humanity of Jesus, John wants us to see the deity. This is truly 100% God and 100% man. Well, how does that affect our life? How does that begin to really look? Well, one way they do that is when they begin to trace back. Remember in Matthew, we talked about how important the ancestry was, the lineage? If you go back to Matthew 1.1, where did he take the story of Christ all the way back to? All the way back to Abraham. There was a, in Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of the Jesus Christ, using that word Christ, he's inferring at that point that he's the Messiah. That's the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. He says, this is about the Messiah. This is about the one that you're expecting. He is the son of David. He's the son of a king. You're expecting royalty. Well, he is. He's the son of Abraham. God is keeping his covenant through the ages. But we didn't get to this last week when we were looking through Luke, but do you know that Luke also gives a genealogy? We don't see it until chapter 3. But in Luke chapter 3, he begins to trace back Christ. And look what it says, Luke 3.23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph. And he starts there. And by the time we get to verse 28, he's all the way down. And look what verse 28 says. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Whereas Matthew goes all the way back to David the king and Abraham. Luke says, I want you to see the humanity of Jesus, this one that's born. And he's very human. In fact, he, always, he goes all the way back to Adam himself. He goes back to Adam. Well, John gives us a genealogy, but it's not one with names per se. Look at John 1.1. And we begin to see a genealogy that he portrays. He says in this simple verse, John 1, 1, in the beginning, where have we heard that before? Genesis 1, 1, that in the beginning, God created. And he starts in that way. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now, do you notice anything about the word, word there? Capitalize. Who's it talking about? Jesus. Okay, so every time you see the word, you can put the word Jesus in there. In fact, we'll, we'll see that a little bit later on. Yeah, there we go. That was easy. <laughs> in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, guys, Luke is Jewish, okay? 
he's a doctor, he's an historian, um, and so he's, he's writing from that perspective. John is coming, John is Jewish. He's coming from a perspective that's there too. And John is writing, and for John to say, not only that Jesus came, but that Jesus was, the, was God, that was a big step. That was a big admittance for a Jewish person to say, this little baby is actually God. Because they were reverent about the things of God. Remember in the Old Testament, they didn't even say the name of God. For John to come to this conclusion and for John to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and say, okay, in the beginning was the Word, was Jesus. And the Word was with God, Jesus the, uh, the Son, Jesus the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. They're together. And in fact, this Jesus is God. He starts from the very beginning. He begins to teach us in this that his ancestry doesn't go back to just David and, and Abraham. He goes back even farther than Luke took it to Adam. Where does he go? He goes preexistent, creation. He said before there was even the world, even before everything was created, before Genesis 1-1, Jesus was. Now, do you think that's a pretty important fact? I will, I will tell you this. Everything that you believe about Christ... And everything that you believe about the salvation message of how we can have redeemed a life through Jesus Christ rests on this fact. Everything. You take this part out and you just have a baby Jesus being born about 2,000 years ago and folks, we lose the significance of the whole biblical story. Jesus comes. He's before the world. And where Matthew and Luke really told us about how Jesus came, John wants us to know why Jesus came. That's why he doesn't, you know, say a manger. He doesn't talk about shepherds and magi. He, he's not saying, okay, here's how Jesus came. That's already been covered. But do you want to know why Jesus came? And that's where he puts his emphasis. And as we begin to see what John wrote, we have to understand what was going on in the culture. Again, this is 10, 15 years probably after the other Gospels. And already, I mean, Jesus has already ascended. He's with the Father. But in that first century of Christianity, do you realize that they were already speculative about who Jesus really was? There was already those and a big contention of people that says, well, you know, I think Jesus was a good man, but I don't know that he was really the God man. Already they were questioning, was, this really, was Jesus really deity? There were others that thought, okay, was Jesus really human? We know that he was, you know, he looked human, He's probably like the best-looking spirit form that we ever found because he looked real. But there was, already spir- uh, there was already speculation that maybe Jesus was just spiritual and not fully human. So that's where John's coming from. That's why John is being very theological. That's why he's taking the time not to tell us about mangers and all that. He wants us to know at the end of his story that Jesus was fully God and that Jesus was fully man. Now, if you can figure that out, how you can be fully God and fully man and really describe it in a way that is understandable, you're better than me. I can't explain the Trinity. I believe all my heart, with all my heart, the Trinity, that God is three in one, one in three. But I I don't get this whole, how can you be 100% God and 100% man? I believe it with all my heart. But it's mathematically, logically, it just doesn't kind of compute. But you know, that's one of the reasons why John actually uses this title for Jesus as the Word. Anybody just happen to know what the Word, uh, what 
the, the Greek word for word is? Yes, it's logos. And it's where we get our word logic. In other words, John wants us to know by calling him the word, the logos, he says, look, this, this is logical. It's going to defy logic how you can be 100% man and 100% this. How can you be 100% of two different things? And yet the very word that he uses to describe Jesus in this account is a word where we draw our word logic. And so how do we get to a logical conclusion of this? Let's look again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he's talking about Jesus. And so we can easily read this. Uh, and again, I, I'm one of those that, you know, the Bible says don't change the Bible whatsoever. But, but this is what, what he meant. We can easily say in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. That, that's really how we would interpret the words that he used there. And he uses that word in that title so that we would be able to see that what he's talking about here is the truth that really in one way defies logic, but he's trying to give us a logical basis. And he goes all the way back to in the beginning, just as the Bible starts off there. Well, what we begin to see here is that Jesus is not a created being. He's actually the one who created all things. Look at verse 2 and 3. He, that is Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John leaves no doubt to his readers that Jesus is 100% God, but he doesn't stop there. Go down to verse 14. And that's where we're going to camp out a little bit this morning. He says, I want you to know Jesus is 100% God. He, everything that you see that's cre- in creation, Jesus created that. Look down at verse 14. And the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as that of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The big theological word for this? Incarnation. God taking on flesh. But here's what it means. It means that God took on a body just like ours. What's the the ramifications of that? That Jesus participated fully in this experience. I mean, there's really a lot of great things about being human. But aren't there kind of some really (laughs) downsides to being human? For example, age and the aging process. That's not really, you know, we're we're not like a fine wine where we improve with age, okay? I mean, in many respects maybe, but not bodily, not physically. I better clear that up. (laughs) You know, physically, I, I don't know too many people that said yes, uh, I mean, we have only one occasion in the Bible where Caleb, I think, was the one that said, you know, I feel he was older at that time, and he said, I feel like I'm 20 years old. No, I'm 53, and I feel like I'm 153 some mornings, you know. And so there's, there's some limitations to this thing called flesh. And yet the Bible says very clearly here that Jesus participated fully in all that it means to live a human life. Jesus wasn't mostly human and a little bit God. He wasn't 50-50. He was 100% man. He was 100% God. There was a lot of early theologians that had problems with that. They didn't mind thinking that Jesus was deity and that he was God, but they really had, they wanted to limit the humanness of Jesus. And I'm not trying to be crude this morning, 
But there was a lot of theologians that really had a problem that Jesus would have to go to the bathroom. There was a lot of early theologians that said, okay, how far did this humanity really go? Because they could not imagine their God that they would worship doing human things. And yet what the Bible says is that he clothed himself in flesh. Paul would write in Colossians 2.9, Paul would write this. He would say, for in him that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily. In other words, he said, look, God enclosed himself fully in a body for this experience. And remember, John's not trying to tell you how Jesus was born, but why Jesus was born. And, and here's two applications that we can get out of this verse 14. That, that's really where the Christmas story of John is in verse 14. There's countless reasons why we could point out why Jesus was born. But I want to leave with you two this morning. Unless you want to stay for a couple hours, then I can expand. But if you want to just stay within uh, our, our time this morning, let, let me focus just on, on two aspects. of What does it mean that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us? The first one is, do you know that even in the wording of flesh, there's a softness to it? I mean, when you, when you touch your flesh, would you describe that as hard or soft? Soft. And with that softness, would you agree that comes vulnerability? I mean, any big Iron Man fans? Yeah. Q's back there. Yeah. You know, what, what, what does the guy in the Iron Man do? He puts himself in this very hard case. He surrounds himself with metal so that, you know, you know, when the bullets start flying, when all this starts coming, he's going, okay, you can't touch this. You know, you can't get to me because I'm encased in something hard. You, know, you lose the Iron Man suit. You come outside of that, all of a sudden, you're flesh. You're soft. You're vulnerable. What John wants us to know, with all this theology, and he's trying to give us this theological argument, he says, I want you to know that in all this theology, God became soft and vulnerable. When he clothed himself in flesh, that he took on not just some of what you and I experience. He takes on the whole account, except for sin. Except for sin. There's a theological question that always, uh, you just get a lot of really nerdy theologians around and you throw this one out and it's fun just to see them start chasing their tail. Did Jesus ever get sick? Did he ever catch cold? Did Jesus ever have one of those maniac headaches that we can get from time to time? Well, I'll tell you what I believe. When the Bible says that he, he clothed himself in flesh and that he really experienced everything that you and I experienced, I think that he did. I mean, we know that he got tired. There was times that the Bible said, you know, he was exhausted. There was times that it says, and he became hungry. If he did hunger, if he did exhaustion, if he did all of those things that you and I experienced, I, I think that he did catch a cold from time to time. I, I don't know that he walked here for 30 plus years and said, you know, I've never had a headache, <laughs> never been sick a day in my life, never been in the hospital, never broke a bone. I, the breaking the bone, he didn't do that because it was prophecy. But as far as the cold, I, I think that he did. I think when the Bible says that he experienced everything that you and I did, that he really did experience everything that you and I did. Not just in an emotional way, not just in a physical way, but, but in every capacity of that. Because when we begin to see that Jesus was clothed in flesh, we begin that that experience wasn't so that God can go, you know, I, look, I want to go tip... 
dip my toes into this thing called the world to kind of see what it is like. But God knows all things. There's nothing hidden from God. This isn't so God can experience what you and I experience just for the fact that it's you know, something that he had never done. No, it's so that the Bible says that he could be this great high priest that you and I would never go through a sorrow in our life. We would never go through a vulnerability of this flesh, that we would never go through this softness that we call humanity and say, you know, God, you just don't know how I feel. Look what the writer of Hebrews said. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had power of death, that is the devil. The writer of Hebrews says, okay, why did God clothe himself in flesh? He says, here's one good reason. So that as he dwelt among you, walking just like you did, that he could slay this whole thing called death. You might say, well, Bobby, people pass all the time. He, He didn't slay death. Not to the physical body, but he did to the spirit. And really, in one way, he did to the physical body too. You know what the promise of every Christian is? It's not just a spiritual resurrection, but what? A bodily resurrection. That one day when we gather, the people of God gather in heaven, that we will be as we were. Now, I don't know what that body looks like. I have no clue. But it's going to be a spiritual resurrection that happens immediately. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. But there will be a bodily resurrection. And that's what the writer of Hebrews, he said, he took on this body so that he could put defeat to death in the grave forever. But look what he wrote a little bit later on in verse 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in what? In every respect. Did Jesus get cold? I think so. He got tired, he got hungry, he had all the other things. I think he had every physical situation that we have. I think it did not limit itself to the physical I think it extended to the emotional. Jesus cried. He wept. He was brokenhearted. When people turned their back on him, it hurt him as it would hurt you and and me. He did not have this Iron Man shield around him when it came to emotions. I believe he laughed well, and I believe he cried well. I believe that he was brokenhearted. You know, all this was already prophesied. If we went to the Old Testament, to what Isaiah the prophet would say, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem, here's what Isaiah said. He was despised. Talking about Jesus, he said, He was despised and rejected by man. A man of what? Don't want to sound like an old preacher, but let me sound like an old preacher. Does that bless your heart? What does it mean that Jesus was a man of sorrows? It means that when I have sorrow in my life, I have a great high priest who knows what sorrow really is. Have you ever had a friend that you you were just opening up to and and you begin to share some of your sorrows? And and, and many times that friend is very sympathetic. But I think we all have that one friend Oh, you think that's bad? 
Let me tell you, you broke your arm. I broke both arms and a leg. And here you are, you're in a place of sorrow and, and you're opening up a little bit and, and, you know, they don't mean to, but you don't get sympathy, you get comparison and you got the short end of the sorrow. Oh, your dog died? Well, I had a dog and a cat. They both ran away. No, Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus ever comes, says, okay, this Christ who's coming, he's going to save you from your sins, but he's going to be a man of sorrows. I I pray that that would bless your heart this morning, that you would really understand that this clothing in flesh, this, this opening himself up, God becoming man, fully God but yet fully man, that he exposed himself to sorrow so that when you and I have sorrow in our lives, we have a sympathetic high priest. We have one that we pray to that knows our heart. Carly and I have been married for over 30 years now, uh, 33 years. And I love her with all my heart. She, she loves me, I believe, with all her heart. But I'm amazed at sometimes how I can be unsympathetic to the things that bring sorrow to her. And I'm amazed at times that she has no sympathy whatsoever when my team loses and I'm, I have sorrow of heart. And she just doesn't get, you know, do you not understand why I'm upset? Do you not understand why I just yelled at the TV? Isn't it amazing, the, the one that we would share our life with, that we love so much, that, that sometimes they get our sorrows. And then would you admit, the, those that are here, married today, that sometimes they don't get our sorrows? And sometimes it's a guy thing and a girl thing. And it's just like one's right over the head. But it's like, you know, ladies, that's why sometimes you go to another female to share some of those sorrows because the guy's going, you know, I don't either get it or get over it. You know, one or the other. God says that he was to be a man of sorrows. He took on flesh, emotionally, physically, in every way, a man of sorrows, a man of flesh. Why? So that you and I would never go to a God that says, huh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you what happened to me. No, he comes with that brokenheartedness. He comes with that attitude. We're talking about uh, somebody been disloyal to us, somebody who broke our heart and says, I want you to know, not in comparison, not to make your hurt minimum to my great pain, but I just want you to know, I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it's like to have one who followed you for three years to turn you over by the guards and say, yes, he's the one, to turn you over by a kiss of betrayal. I know what that's like, and so I know your heart, and I am a man of sorrows, so you can share with me your sorrow. Amen. We do not have this God who is far off, some of you older ones will know years ago there was a song, Bette Miller, and sang this song about this God who was far off, from a distance. He's not a God from a distance. He's a God who can clothe himself in flesh. Why? Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. Hundreds of years before he ever comes, he says, surely this is the man that God is going to send. He's going to carry our grief and he's going to bear our sorrow. Hebrews 2.18 said it this way, the writer of Hebrews, he, he goes, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. And when we hear that word tempt, we almost instantly begin to think of sin in our time of temptation. And it certainly means that. 
But that word tempt there has a lot of different meanings. It can mean uh, tested and examined. And, And basically, from the time that you drew your first breath as a baby to the time that you'll draw your last breath, this is a test. There's constant examination going on. Not so much God testing you, are you worthy for this, are you worthy for that, but life is a test. And and what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, look, as you go through this life of examination, of testing, of trial, of all these things where you're tempted, know that you have this great high priest who's went and walked every step that you've ever been and had victory. What are you being tested by, examined by this morning? It could be a family situation. It could be something small. And you say, you know, in comparison to, to where I've been this time last year or five years ago, I'm, right now life is good. Or you could say, you know, Bobby, I'm probably at one of the most crisis points in my entire life the testing, the trial in my life, the examination of my life right now, I, I would put it up there with just about you know, the heaviest part of my life. My prayer this morning is that you would know this God, God-man, fully God and fully man, who's walked this path, been vulnerable, put on flesh, a softness, a vulnerability for the sake of having victory over that vulnerability, but also to be sympathetic and this time before that victory comes. There's not a single human being on earth that can quite comprehend the the pain that you're going through. Admittedly, not even your spouse, even if you've been married 30, 40, 50, 60 years. You're going to handle pain and discouragement and testing and trial in different ways. You're going to handle your sorrow in a different way because you're unique, made in the image of God in that uniqueness. But while there's not another human being, not even your mama, not even your daddy, that fully comprehend the sorrow of your heart, there is a God-man who does. That's the promise that we have here. That's John's Christmas story. Without stables, without shepherds, without magi, without gifts. He wants you to know theologically truth. He says, I want you to know that this man, this little baby that was born, is God in the flesh. Let me end with this. Can we go back to John one uh, fourteen? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, there's that, you know, you can put that picture up, that's great. I think that picture does more to, to give us kind of the, the visual there. See that word dwelt is from John 1.14. Uh, the, the word, Jesus became flesh, took on this softness, this vulnerability, and, and dwelt among us. There was a lot of words that you could use in the Greek language that was common Greek that day for this word dwelt. It could be mean, uh, they could use a word that we would say abode, to, to dwell in. But the word that John uses here is actually a, a word that wasn't used as often to, to communicate a dwelling, and that is a word from the Old Testament that meant tabernacle. So, so literally, if you read this kind of in the Greek version of it, it would say the word became, Jesus became flesh, and he tabernacled, that is, he put his tent with us. 
Well, you begin to think of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, what was the purpose of the tabernacle? Here they're out there in the middle of the desert. They feel like God is a million miles away, and yet God instructed them to build a tabernacle. Why? So he said, okay, this is where I will reside. And remember, the the glory of the Lord would shine through it. And can you imagine you're out in the middle of the desert, and you know that you've been disobedient to a holy God because that's why they were out there roaming around because they had not been faithful to God's promise. And so they're out there at their own you know, fault and they're roaming around, wandering for 40 years. And yet God in his grace and his mercy doesn't say, okay, I turn my back on you for the next 40 years. And you know, maybe after those 40 years of wandering, maybe then I will look upon you. Now what does he do? In the midst of all that wandering and their rebellion and their sin. He said, I want you to build a tabernacle. And he gave them the specific ways to do that. That was the place of the sacrifice. It was the place of the, of the priest and then the Holy of Holies. And he said, I will reside there so that in the middle of the desert, in the midst of your rebellion, you will know that there's still a God who loves you. John didn't say, okay, what word can I use here for dwelling with us? Hmm, I'll just use the word abode. I'll just use this. No, he says, I want you to know that Christ is tabernacling, if that's a word, with you. He, he's dwelling in a tent. He's tenting with you. He uses that word from the Old Testament specifically because he wants to know, look, in this desert that you're roaming around in, God's right there. God's right there. But he's not a temporary temple that moves around. That's what the tabernacle, remember as they were wandering, after they were there for a while, what would they do to the tabernacle? They would tear it down and they would move on to the next place and then they would put the tabernacle back up and they would kept on doing this, uh, kind of following that nomadic power, of, uh, you know, going around and, and, and they would do that. And, and what John wants to know, look, I want you to know the tabernacle of tabernacles has come and it's not a temporary It's not just kind of there. It is now in you. The tabernacle was eventually replaced by what? The temple. Remember? Finally, they had the temple. What John wants us to know this morning is that Jesus is tenting with us. He's made himself vulnerable. And he's not replaced by a temple. He is the temple. This isn't a temple, folks. This is a gathering place this morning. This, this place is a gathering place of, of saints. We already have a temple. We have the completion of all that needs to be done in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, what is your sorrow? Do you feel like maybe, you know, there's really nobody that quite understands? And you don't see that, say that in a complaining way. You just say that in a sorrowful way. John would want you to know this morning by his Christmas story, minus mangers and angels singing and shepherds and magi and frankincense and myrrh and all that, he wants you to know this morning that God put on flesh to dwell among us, fully God, fully man, a man of sorrows, so that you have a high priest now that knows every ache of your heart. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, it is hard to to comprehend what it really means that Christ was fully God and fully man. I believe it with all my heart. I believe it in faith. 
because your word has stated it, Father. But I, I don't know that I comprehend the fullness of that. And I pray that this morning that you would give us comprehension of that. And Father, I pray this morning that we would really understand what this whole incarnation really means, what it means that, that you, holy God, dwelt among us in flesh. There was a softness, there was a vulnerability that you entered into all for our sake so that you could have victory over the flesh and death and the grave but also so that in this present time we can have you, a great high priest who's praying to the Father on our behalf right now. Jesus, we thank you for that. Thank you that maybe perhaps I cannot go to another person in this entire world and then really understand where my heart is, but I can come to you and you get me. So Father, I thank you for this gift of Christ. I thank you for the salvation and victory over sin, death, and the grave. And I thank you that that is already being experienced, Father, now in the way that you extend grace and mercy to us on an everyday basis to dwell among us. So we love you and we thank you, Father. And we lift up our voices to you in praise. And Father, I pray that this morning, that as we would close with this reflection song, that, Father, that you would just open our hearts that if we have these heavy burdens, Father, that that we can bring them to you and that we can know in full faith that you totally get it, you, you totally understand and that you will carry our lives and carry our hearts from this day forward. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.